Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. Today I'm here with Rob Benson. Rob is ex-Twitter. He was there at Twitter in the formative years, bootstraps a lot of it, and scaled the team to a point where they were able to onboard several hundreds of thousands of users in the very early days. So uh, if you have any questions or comments at the end of the show, we're going to be able to pick up super chats because our YouTube channel is now monetized. Woohoo! And so, yeah, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to keep supporting this channel, go ahead and ask questions at the end of the show. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chango. It's good to be here. It was good to meet you in person when we were in Medellin. That was super fun. So I know. Actually, it was after you showed me your bad kid that I fumbled into it. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> yeah. That was an effort to get that. But yeah, it was super fun. It was super fun. How did, it was crazy. How did you get it? Uh, I was at, it was took many people actually helping me because there was actually a Kepler bug that we could not figure out how to get uh, into the wallet. Yeah. You know, bought it through, I think through Stargaze, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then got it and then uh, found the one I wanted that looked a little bit, you know, the glasses, pale complexion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, oh, that Rob? <laughs> right there. That's your avatar. Yeah. So got that way. Yes. We, yeah. We were in Medellin for Cosmoverse and we had, or Josh Dojmos was hosting a Bad Kids meetup. And we all went there, and Rob was showing me his bad kid art, and this was before I even got mine. So that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rob, is there something about your background that you want to tell us about that I didn't exactly cover? Yeah, I think probably, I mean, I've got a lot of, as much as people are interested, definitely, maybe just in time order real quick, and then you can dive in wherever you want. But basically... Like super nerd back in the day, you know, studied physics and wasn't good enough to go like actually change the world with physics. So I was like, oh, I want to go do something where I can move a little faster. I'm not that patient of an individual. So then I came back and jumped into uh, Sun Microsystems. So like their first chapter of my career is really as an engineer going deep on compilers and operating systems in the early aughts and having fun at the VMware and Microsystems. And then the second chapter, which you mentioned, was I jumped into Twitter and the first, I think I was maybe, you know, let's un- under 200 employees for sure. And kind of in 2010 and did the whole rodeo, which maybe we, we may get into, but started with the World Cup within a couple of weeks of me joining in 2010 and kind of living the shipping software as fast as you can, but also having a service and a product that just is, there's an insatiable appetite out there in the market, but it's also one where, you know, the company wasn't necessarily ready, at least from a technical perspective to handle it. So I went through that for six or so years and had a lot of chapters within Twitter. But after that, I went and uh, built a lot of developer tooling. I really like building for developers. It's kind of where I feel the most comfortable when it comes to understanding and having empathy for that persona, if you will. And so I've done a couple of tours of work in that area, working console and on streaming systems on the data side. And then the last one was Lightstep, which is an observability or monitoring solution for developers. 
And so that's me. That's me and what I've done in the last at least 20 years. And a lot of the last 10 or so just is, is me really building out teams in multiple time zones and hiring and coaching and doing all the things you do when you build badass teams that do amazing things in the world. So my understanding of you is that you like to ride rockets, <laughs> like yeah. the next moonshot. Yeah. Um, and now you're at Osmosis Labs. What yeah. got you interested in crypto and working on DeFi in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think you're absolutely right. I like to ride rockets. The way I, I was just talking to a friend from the past, and I think the way I would phrase it, uh, which maybe gives a bit color of my personality, but for better or worse, as I like asymmetric risk. So I like a huge amount of risk on the product side where there's like, say, we're trying to do something that may or may not be achievable or seems way up or off. And then kind of applying a lot of technical expertise, uh, the people that I, you know, railed around and, and the team I'm with to try and accomplish those goals. But I love those like moonshots. It's like kind of why I get up in the morning. So I got to crypto. It's actually, it's a kind of a combination of like core philosophy about, you know, trying to change the world and stuff, which we can get to. But it's also on the system side. So I, as I mentioned, I was a physics geek in the past and I love math. So like the cryptography side of things, zero knowledge, all this kind of stuff pulled me in. So there seems like there's a lot of foundational systems work to be done. And there are a lot of very interesting people. Actually, it's interesting. This is probably the third time I've come back to crypto. I think it was the second time, maybe in 2015-ish, where I actually got to see Jay Kwan talking about Tendermint and kind of the beginning of that whole thing, which I know you were a huge part of. And so it was really kind of, oh, I you know, I had seen Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff, but it was the first time I'd heard about proof of stake and kind of consensus world. What we dealt with, with um, Raft and some of this other stuff on the system side, but it was the first time I'd seen that kind of run into the crypto universe. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is great. So I think to be concise is like, Part of this is a, as a systems builder, as a platform builder, it's like, oh, for developers, this actually is a really interesting way of building new systems. And then that kind of dovetails to like, I really got interested, my family's history and my father specifically, who I have a great deal of respect for, he spent his entire career in finance. And so it's like one of those where I've always been able to kind of see the world of finance, but I never entered it. But I always had this idea that at some point the worlds were going to converge, where the systems I build there was going to be some financial value to it, or part of it was going to be that. And actually, as a part of that story at Twitter, I went to the revenue side. It became very clear to me that the revenue side of social, at least in the Web2 space, was not what I was looking for. Like that revenue model or that way of extracting value from the users was not that interesting without them knowing it or not getting a fair shake of it. So I think that gets to the flossing side of things. Like I'm I'm very interested in the data privacy side. I'm very interested in self-sovereignty. I'm very interested in a lot of this, what we're trying to do on the, the crypto side. And so it's really interesting to kind of combine all of that and like, okay, I can actually keep, I can keep my keys. I can keep my data. I can actually plug that into a system that actually now the entire world has a, you know, a ledger that we actually can have an understanding of ownership, that there's not a human involved. And I can build these systems that are fundamentally different and make it so that developers can build the next version of social, the next version of X or Y that addresses some of the pains that we're trying to deal with or some of the things that we're trying to achieve as humans. And so kind of bringing that all together and asymmetric risk where there's just like a lot of this is moonshots. We're going to try and accomplish huge things with really smart people and we may be able to do it, maybe not. Kind of all as this, you know, stir the pot. It's like, oh, this is exactly the place I should go. And then the last part of that is actually I've been searching for a while, and this led to the question about osmosis, and I got to meet the guy, the folks over at Paradigm and, and some other 
you know, great folks um, on the venture side. And they introduced me to Osmosis through Dave and Sonny. And I was like, oh, super bright, super great. Actually, Jim uh, Yang, who's who's a part uh, of, the, of the group, obviously. And they're like, hey, we're going to go down to Columbia. So like, would you like want to come down and meet the team before you make a decision? I was like, oh, that sounds great. Because in the end, I want to take these moonshots. I want to take this risk. I want to build something that has an impact and has a legacy. But I want to do it with people that I really enjoy being around and want to spend time trying to kind of bang our heads against really hard problems. And that's not easy to find. It's not easy to find. It's getting harder. And so when I went down to Columbia and I met the team, I met you, met a lot of people in the ecosystem, uh, Jake from the Juno side. Like it was just one of those like Dan Lynch on the cosmology side. It's just like a very interesting nerd first approach where it's like, oh, we could build some really cool stuff. Let's go do this. This is going to be fun. So that's kind of was the cincher of the deal of how I got to Osmosis in a long form story. So hopefully that was useful. That's very useful. I love it. So you named the things that attracted you to this space, meaning like self-sovereignty and um, key management, which are typically things that repel most average users. Right. This is telling that the space is still early enough to be attracting the innovators and the technologists like yourself. And we're still pretty far away from reaching the mainstream and crossing that chasm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's actually, if you don't mind me jumping in, I think that's actually one of the reasons that I think it's very exciting to me because those basic user pains are crossing the chasm. And I was thinking about it, like when I was kind of circling around and thinking about product ideas in the space and, and that kind of stuff, I always was thinking, I think in personas, like who am I trying to build for and what are the pains that I'm trying to build? So I can really gravitate towards them. I actually, is there market fit for whatever I'm doing? And I remember thinking, okay, the target historically for me on the Web2 side was always like, okay, it's my mom or... You know, it's somebody of the former generations, and I come to this formation. Maybe I'm, I'm relatively new to the space, so I'll, I'll show I'll show that newbiness. But I'm kind of thinking like, okay, it's actually not the generation paths. It's actually my nephew, who's super bright, plays games all the time, who skis. He he lives in the in the mountains or whatever. But he's the one who we have to capture. So when we're thinking about those onboardings, we're thinking about these user flows that really not only capture the innovators, but how are we going to build so that it, it's a sticky experience for him in the sense that it provides value, but he still has control, which so many of those sticky experiences that he has right now remove all control. Everything is extracting value, extracting information from him, and he gets nothing from it. So I've really been puzzling, like, okay, as we're building, maybe not in the DeFi space, because I don't know if he's going to get so far down the rabbit hole, but just in general about crypto is how do we make these on-ramps? How do we make the value at the end of the day, something that the generation at the 16-year-old or the 20-year-old, 16 probably is better maybe 12 to 16 right now is something that they see something of value and are like, okay, I get the idea of NFTs. I get the idea of what these folks are trying to do across the Web3 the crypto space. I'd like to jump in and actually experience the game or whatever it is that is going on. Wow. You know, th- this tells me that you definitely do have like a product mind first because this is, I mean, I talked to so many people building in the space. No one's picked up about that being the target demographic. And mm-hmm. now that you've said it out loud, it couldn't be more obvious, actually. <laughs> I mean, like one of my favorite stories in crypto is how um, Charlie Noyes got into the space. Uh, Charlie Noyes is, is part of Paradigm, and he's one of our investors. And he's something like, like early 20s right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he got into the space when he was in his teens. You know, when you're in your teens, you can't open a bank account. And so you're you're right. just as unbanked as anyone from a developing country. Uh, and that's a big use case. 
And a lot of the people who got in in like 2010, they told me they got in because they were buying their first Silk Road drugs. Right. It's totally true. That's how I heard about it too. You know, they're internet native, so they could pick it up much better than somebody who is yeah. like a complete Luddite, like my mom. You know, she's like still yeah. learning how to how to SMS text. Right, right. <laughs> For sure. Actually, it's interesting that you mentioned the unbanked because I think one of the things that was more one of the most powerful presentations at the Cosmoverse down in Medellin was I, I'm totally going to get the name of the company wrong and I'd look it up, but I don't want to distract us. It was like Tropical or Tropica. And it was a person, it was a very bright individual, a man who had created basically a way for folks that are crossing borders in South America to basically get low interest loans as opposed to like the very extractive, like 20, 30% loans. So that like, as an example, he had one person who'd crossed the border, I think, and I can't remember if it was Brazil to another country, I can't remember exactly. But it was like, I'm trying to buy a motorcycle so I can get to work. And it was just like one of those profound stories. And he had a lot of data in, in the presentation, which always is a thing for me. But it was very clear that like he was affecting the world in a way that he was actually having a core impact on folks that were like trying to move across borders for whatever reason, whether it be family or politics or whatever, and getting to the place where they're like, I need some basic things. I have no credibility from a financial perspective, although I have assets back in my old country, but I have no way of actually kind of beginning to kickstart that transaction and getting those things going so I could take a loan out and buy a motorcycle to get to work because it's an hour away because I can't get any closer. Just like one of those where it was like very viscerally real as important, it, you know, this, this financial system that actually is untethered from kind of your normal fiat. It was like, cool. It was like, okay, I see this now actually viscerally. I, I can see this person who's actually created value for, and I can name that person, right? That's the person that described them. So. It was really cool to see that the, that was actually use cases that were floating around in the world right now and getting value. Definitely, it's interesting to me that some of the m- most innovative stuff that I think I'm going to see in the short term is probably going to be outside of the country, outside of the United States, because of just people being more creative, I think, in how to think about the use cases. Not from the technology necessarily, I think there's a lot of great technology all over, but from the standpoint of bridging that gap to like actual use cases where it touches the folks that are not crypto native. It's really interesting to go to Colombia and kind of get a firsthand, like outside the view. It reminded me of a story where the creator of Nest had to go to France and like live there for a while and kind of think outside of kind of technology bubble of San Francisco or the Barrier and all the other kind of natural bubbles and kind of understand like, oh, everything we have, you know, thermostats all over and like they're totally down. Why, why is that? That's, that's stupid. Let's go approach this in a different way. It felt that's not a good example necessarily from the fundamental nature of kind of money and that kind of stuff. But it, it felt like that when I get to Medellin, I was looking for the Rubik's cube from a totally different perspective, which was really cool. So I think I love the international kind of nature of how we're trying to problem solve in space. You do look at it from a different lens. So if we're talking about the bell curve, a lot of crypto natives tend to focus on the right side of the bell curve, right? Where, where we're talking about things that are, luxuries. So for people who don't necessarily need crypto, but like to use it just to farm, you like to yield farm, it's just for fun and it's gamified. But then you're interested in what's left of the bell curve, right? Like the bottom 1%, people who really need it for real world use cases, yeah. like remittances or, you know, crossing borders. Um, yeah. Or, you know, if you're in like Venezuela escaping socialism. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Absolutely spot on. I also think it's interesting, like I'm thinking about moving my family to Europe and I was trying to figure out like 
how do you do custodia of fiat currencies? And it's actually really interesting. I was just jumping in the space and I was like, you talking to banks and doing all this stuff. It was like classic, like no bank does the thing you want to do and they're going to charge you some absurd amount of fee just to like actually hold a euro, right? Uh, in a banking app. I was like, there's actually stable coins that are pegged to the euro. Why am I not doing that? It takes like two seconds to do it. So it was like one of those where it was like an epiphany, a light bulb went on. I was like, to your point, it's not only 1%, it is that other part of the curve, but they're just like natural use cases for people that are not kind of in the natural like flow of the US of like the, just the usual, like, oh, okay, I go get groceries and, you know, the natural life or the normal life. But it's like people that are trying to do something a little bit different. I think these systems actually, whether it be on the outside of the United States, and that's obviously maybe pejorative to say it's not normal. That's not what I mean. But it's just not like what we've patterned out with all of our banking systems as normal. It's kind of enabling all of us who are going to do something a little bit different. We want to live in a different country. We don't want to be bold into that kind of stuff. We want a little bit more flexibility. seems like it kind of approaches all different people in different ways, even if you're not uh, totally unbanked, I guess is what I'm saying. It definitely has a place there for sure. But it even gets to the point where like, I found a use case for it that was kind of interesting. Even if you are banked, there's problems, there's pitfalls, because now with FTX having fallen out, the banks that are that used to be crypto friendly, like Signature Bank or Silvergate, they're being investigated by the SEC and it's it's not innocuous. So as a product person, where do you think the chasm lies and how do we cross it to make banking UX better? I know this is like. This is like a multi-billion dollar question and yeah, you know, no, I'm, no. Like, I'm like to sit here and expect you to answer the question so that we could start building that that infrastructure yeah, yeah. and solve yeah. the problem. But, you know, where's your where's your head at with when it comes to that? This is probably extremely clear to everybody, but I, you're, you're right. And then I, you know, my background is a lot of nerdery when it comes to systems and that kind of stuff. But the last 10 years is really me reframing my mind to approach things from a product perspective because I care about the I built a number of things that have not been used and I never wanted to do that again. So it kind of forced me to like, okay, why am I building these things? To answer your question, which is obviously the billion if not trillion dollar question at this point, depending on how big you think this market is. I think the very obvious answer, but it's very clear to me, is that having worked with amazing designers of Summit Osmosis, but I've worked with some amazing in the past, is essentially the onboarding, whether it be like into the actual experience or it's, it's actually getting fiat into the crypto space. All that stuff is way too hard. Like, there's way too many clicks. There's way too much. There's way too much of a inside out approach to these. So like, as an example, I think I was, and I'm not going to pick on a wallet, but I was trying to get Fiat, you know, into a wallet and it was, I was trying to do it on a non-centralized, which is where you're like, you know, not the Coinbase or whatever. And it was just like, I couldn't figure it out. You know, I've got 20 years of experience in building lots of systems. And I was like, I can't, and it had an error in the middle. And I was like, okay. I just can't figure out how to get a dollar into the system to start to like actually figure out and play with these different product experiences. So I think the very obvious answer to me is, is like, we got to make it as easy as humanly possible for people to actually enter it in the space. If they have a dollar, we should figure out how to get that into something that they can use. And I think there's convergence there, but I think in my mind, there's a number of foundational pieces, but it's also a big design question. Like how do we actually bring systems? I'm biased because my partner, she's a designer as well. And I love the systems approach to it, but like, how do we take the human Syed at Osmosis, who I think is great, is also a very good design mind uh, as well as product, is like really kind of coming to this and like, okay, what, how will we make this as easy as possible? So the person can accomplish their goal. That's the easy part. The thing I haven't figured out, and this is, I think everybody's trying to do it, is what the, what's the incentive model? So like, how are we bringing people into this and why? I mean, obviously there's 
in the DeFi space, you bring it in and, and you're hoping to you make money and specifically. But I think for the crypto in space in general, there's got to be a different incentive model. So I'm surrounded by people who care about NFTs and not necessarily at Osmosis, but in, another crew uh, that I know. In the gaming space, there's a number of things that are people are trying to get in. So I don't think I have an insightful answer to this, but I do think it all comes back to that. And I have a bias, but I do think it comes back to the heart of what I think crypto needs is the community it has now to grow exponentially when it comes from the developer. When I'm thinking about the developers who are coming in that space, we need an equal amount of people who are like cryptographers and like system builders and that kind of stuff paired with what may be described as web two, but I don't mean it to be as web two, but more of the like the design and kind of the people who are thinking about the user experience. And I think that's the part where I've seen some really great people in this space. But if I look at crypto in general and look at the average tweets that I'm thinking, you know, reading or whatever, a lot of it is going rabbit hole of like a lot of systems side of things. I think there needs to be a balance so we can start to think about the product. Because think about this, like we go back in the 90s, uh, I'm old enough to have been around and, and post high school in the 90s. And I remember coming and I'd see like, you know, all these people were building all sorts of stuff, you know, on the network and the internet is kind of early Mozilla days or whatever, Netscape days. Like all of it wasn't user friendly. So like the capture of the market, the total addressable market wouldn't get my mother, nor would it get me. Cause I was like, I, you know, like I, I was a nerd. So I cared about the Linux side of it and building things up and doing all sorts of websites up. But like, it wasn't for actual product use cases. And so I think it was only when we started to get people like, you know, Bezos and some other folks who were like, I'm going to go build a bookstore, some basic thing just to figure this out, see if it's actually more efficient. And so maybe actually let's extract myself from this, this whole, I think, if I were to think about this, the thing that we need is more of a product mindset. And this is a bias, but like it, more people who are coming to it. Like, here's the pain. Now let me figure out like, where does crypto fill in that? And I see all it finds that, you know, maybe half of the conversations are not more. It's more of like, okay, here's the hammer of crypto. How are we going to apply it to something? It's a little bit backwards. But this is how innovation works. This is how, you know, speculation of technology works. Everybody's coming out from a different, and we eventually converge on some use cases. And I think we got a couple couple of the double diamonds to go where we diverge a bit, come back. And I think that's just a natural cycle of things. Speaking of successful products, let's go back to Twitter. Sure. Say what you will about Twitter. And I'm speaking to the audience here because it's changed a lot, a lot since the beginning. What were the early days like? And nice. what was the user experience like compared to today? Uh, that's a great question. Actually, it's funny you say that. The user experience has changed for sure. But not that much. I think one of the critiques many people have on it, Sarah, is that over the history of time of Twitter, it ha the product side has actually not changed that much. And it's maybe good, maybe bad, depending upon your approach, like your usage of the product. But it is not something that's, that's innovated. But I will say, and there's a, there's a person who I, I met very early, who was even earlier than me at Twitter. And he had this, I, he was on the business side. And he was like, this is the product that will not die. Like it literally won't die. Like we do everything to try and kill this thing, whether it be like business decisions or it's like technical decisions and like it won't die. And so there was a virality to the product, which was extremely present when I got there in 2010. And it had been around for a number of years, even before that, I think maybe three or four. So I think my early days of Twitter going to the like the war stories or what you will, there were differences for sure. There was no Twitter spaces. There was no a lot of, of that stuff. But if you just looked at the timeline, you know, home timeline and kind of the way this all works and the interaction, the human interactions, it was very similar, but we couldn't handle the scale. 
it was one of those where we were pre-revenue. We had no revenue model. We had the founders at that point. I, w- I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they were very focused on how are we going to make the best product. And they really didn't think about, they didn't want to think about the revenue side. They wanted to prioritize more of the product experience. And in that, we started, just like you said, it was like a hockey stick of growth. It was just exploding. I remember at that time, my, I had a family member through my partner who was living all over the world. He worked for the end. So I'd like traveled to Africa and I traveled Asia, Southeast Asia. And it was funny because I'd arrive and I was like in the startup that was under, you know, two, two fifty at that point of human beings working on this thing. And there'd be like, you know, just a random thing, like a pillar in the airport in like the middle of Mali. And it was like, how does anybody know about, like, why is this thing everywhere? But I'd come back to San Francisco and I'd come back to work. It was grueling isn't probably not the right word, but it was one of those where it was classic Silicon Valley startup, sleep under your desk for weeks. And like, in my case, I got sick and ended up in the hospital because like, I was just not taking care of myself and you're just trying to keep this thing up. And there's a lot of really great people who were, who were working on it. Obviously, I was only one of their, of, I had probably not the smartest of all of them, right, working on this thing. But we were basically all trying to do this. So one of the best war stories I have was we essentially went into the World Cup and it was 2010 and it was clear that we'd gone to this place where we needed an event like that to explode as a product because we clearly had the use case right. We clearly had the basic mechanics of how the product would work. And so that was a question of just kind of giving it a world stage. And so like 2010, in my mind, of course, I came in 2010, so maybe I'm biased. But 2010 was one of those where this thing just exploded. Every time there was a goal, everybody would tweet goal from all over the world. Because obviously, not only were people in the stands using it, but people all over the world who were watching it on television. And literally, every single time, the service would go down. So like we would a goal would be scored, and all of a sudden, our success rate would go to like 20%. We'd all wake up or we would all come up and we'd like try and figure out how to get the system back up and, and running. And it was like trial by fire and such that it was like one where we iterated. And by the end of the World Cup, we were even better at keeping the system up and kind of working on it. It was one of those where the system on a large, we found that we had to do some serious architectural work, even in the midst of kind of fire. And the last thing I'll say on that was we had a VP at that time of Eng who had this analogy by the time we'd all kind of just grizzled by the end of the right. And he was like, we're basically doing heart surgery on a marathon runner who's like sprinting, you know, the last mile. It's just like trying to keep the thing alive as he was like, you know, hurtling towards the finish line. So it was, it was actually a really formative experience. I never worked in like a, an online like uh, production. I'd always worked in enterprise software where you like ship software in a box or whatever, some glorified version of that. So there's the first time where I actually had like pushed to production and, and watched my changes actually have real time effect in the positive and the negatives. I think that all growth comes not in success, but also in pain. We had realized that for all the nerds out there, system nerds, we'd realized that the colo, the colo we weren't in our data centers at that point, that the constraint of the system was actually the network. So we had all these systems running around and they were talking to each other to basically you know, return them or whatever. And we realized that the, one of the huge problems for us is that when things got really busy on the system is that the network pipes between the actual servers, the services would actually get saturated. And then all of a sudden we start to see clipping this, this service fail. And one of the biggest problems that with the, the biggest contributor factors to that was actually that we had this caching layer that was basically for all the tweets. So like, how could we return those sources for the whole timeline? So that when you came, you wouldn't try to refresh and re- recompute all that stuff. It would basically be able to serve it. And I changed a single digit like a single digit within the code base, pushed it. It was an eight to a four, very visually remember this. 
It was basically shrinking the amount of stuff that Rakasha can have. Pushed it. The entire service went down for eight hours. Like zero. Dead. Everything was dead. Because we couldn't get it back up. Because basically, I if anyone's interested, I can go into the details. But we essentially had destroyed the caching layer. And so we basically were hitting the database. I remember pushing the code. Someone was helping me. And he just grabbed his head. And he was like, oh my god. And I was like, what happened? What happened? And I was like two weeks into the job. And they were like, uh, the services down in like the entire company. It was like, I said, it was under 200. They all kind of converged on this little infrastructure area that we had. And I was like, uh-oh, this is not good. And like everybody, it was, it was a really collegial group of people. Everybody was trying. And sometimes we made mistakes and, and that was my big one. And everybody spent hours, like hours and hours, not only getting back up, but cleaning it up. And it was funny because to my last point of not being able to kill the product, people would rush back on the platform and start complaining about Twitter being down. So I was like, it was the town square. It was very naturally the place where people wanted to come from all over the world. So like, I have a lot of war stories about how the service reacted to different different things. But yeah, that was kind of the, the beginning of the, the whole run to try and get Twitter to the place where it did. Goodness. Are there other war stories equally as harrowing as that? I, luckily, that was the most harrowing. Uh, at least for my career. But the one that was the funniest, that was also early, we really got in our said like the first thing that I that helped build out, at least on the team side, was like our observability team, because we were trying to figure out like, can we have a better signal on like when we're succeeding or failing when it comes to like serving timelines and that kind of stuff. So we got really good at understanding, like, okay, something is going on. It's not a big problem yet, but like this thing could get to a place where it's really bad. And there was one <laughs> we were in the office. And so one of my friends who worked with me was like, something's going on. I don't know. Some, like something weird is going on because the caching layer is going kind of crazy. It's super busy. We seem to be doing a lot of work that we're not usually doing. And it turns out that we started pulling the tweets to figure out like, what were the tweets that were causing these problems? And they're all German. And so like one of our colleagues who was sitting right next to us spoke German. He was like, and I was like, what is this? And he just started laughing. I was like, what? Come on, man. Like we, we got time. This thing is going to go down. So he was like, these are women of the night is the phrase he used that were tweeting their location out into the universe. And they were like coordinating. So it was like this group of humans were coordinating on Twitter, their locations and other things that were, you know, related to their craft, if you will. And it was early. So it was like, we couldn't handle a whole lot of that. So they'd hit this edge case for our systems, but it was basically like prostitution ring that was coordinating in Germany. It's like, okay, so we were able to like, Hey, we got to pause that for a second. I'm like, gonna maybe uh, I think at that point, I can't remember exactly the solution, but it was one where we found a solution for that. But he, the reason I mentioned that one is it's a war story because it was like, it was very clearly fun because we were able to connect it to real humans, right? We were able to be like, oh, this is actually really useful to this group of people for whatever pursuit. And so they're using it actively. And it was like, okay, we're building all these systems and we're like thinking about caching and slab allocators and rewriting the Ruby runtime. So it wasn't scanning code, blah, 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 blah. But in the end, it was, I think this is probably, you're getting a sense. This is where I really got that sense for product. All that's great. And it's wonderful to work on. This is why these people use it. And they don't care. They just want it to work because it's actually a fundamental part of their communication infrastructure at this point. So that was another one that was kind of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this podcast to tell you about Interchain FM Steak. Interchain FM is not only a podcast, but also a steakhouse. IFM Steak is a premium, sushi-grade steakhouse running on Osmosis, Umi, and Comdex. 
If you get your alpha from this podcast, show us some love by delegating to Interchain FM Stake. Okay, so as always, an early use case is used by whatever dark underbelly of humanity. Yeah. Just like how Bitcoin's earliest use case was Silk Road. Yeah, yeah. Were there other uh, user types that were using it other than German prostitutes? <laughs> it was like extremely effective for distributed groups of people to coordinate around something. So like the most obvious, like the World Cup was a great example of like sporting. So it was like a lot of sports were, it became very obvious for that. And then obviously the prostitution was so <laughs> Other than that, actually, I think the other one that was a really good use case is, I mean, this is going to date me even further than the 90s reference to the internet or whatever. But if anybody remembers dial-up modems and like BBSs, it became this like self-service community and it was never structured, right? Like that's why hashtag came around because people wanted to bring some structure. And so they would impose it by creating some of these things. And then, you know, Twitter, you know, kind of codified that stuff. But, But it was one where like a lot of geeks, a lot of people who were like interested in the technology and the but social as well, they were there. So this, it was interesting to see all these pockets. But let me answer your question and maybe in a different way. The thing that impressed me the most early days at Twitter, where it was like the scale was big enough that it was like super fun to work on and it was like hockey stick growth. But it was also one where you could really actually, if you work there and you watch the tweets flowing, you could actually start to bucket, okay, this is the German prostitution ring. Here's like, you know, the functional programming nerds over here, here's the sports fans who are interested in soccer. And you could actually see all these different communities. And some of the, some of the most interesting things that were happening early days, because there's a lot of art enthusiasts in the group, is they started doing really interesting art. Like data scientists were actually creating art of this. So there's a couple of things there, you know, mapping out, you know, the interests and seeing how they evolved. It's really cool. The other one that I remember, which maybe is a little less interesting, but it was one where they actually, you could use the geotag on any of the tweets if you opted into actually having geotags and you could actually map cities. So you would like look at a month's worth of tweets and you could see Paris. And so they would like make these murals of like, it was almost like pointillist art, right? There was like showing where the humans were and you would like to get a different view of what the actual, where the people were and what they were doing within like a city or that kind of stuff. So it was really cool, but it was used by early adopters. I think that's another thing to your point about the Bitcoin Silk Road. There's a lot of people who are craving to have communication and coordination in real time, but weren't in a single physical location. And so I think it kind of lends to like academics or people who are interested in topics that maybe there wasn't as many people in a specific area that liked it. Also, underserved communities, especially when it came to human rights or any sort of rights. So like the gay community, obviously being a Castro, I'm in San Francisco. That's very relevant. But it's like those folks who wanted to coordinate these very larger kind of human efforts when it came to bringing more of these rights to the people that were underserved. It became a, a rallying place for that, where their voice could be not only heard by peers from that community and there was coordination, but it also gave them a voice by which they could start to talk to the rest of the world about things that they matter. And that most people didn't have a venue by which to go and find that. There was no town square to listen to a Harvey Milk, unless you were here, obviously he was before that time, but those types of people found a platform where they got a megaphone. That's great, but we've seen how megaphones in the hands of, of some folks maybe needs to be figured out in a different way. And I think that's one of the big challenges for social that became obvious at my in my later time at Twitter is you, it's a really hard problem. Free speech is an incredibly difficult problem that a lot of people are grappling with even obviously now. 
And so it was one of those that like the product was really great and allowed all these communities. But once you got, you know, humanity on there, a large part of humanity is that is access to the internet, it, it becomes a more difficult problem for all sorts of reasons. So. Right. I, I remember during that hockey stick moment, it was 2011 Occupy Wall Street. I think that that was how most yeah. people were coordinating through Twitter. Right. And then that also coincided with civil unrest in Egypt, their Egyptian protests. Yeah all of that. And I think that was the first time something like Web2 social media type use cases started bearing fruit because people were actually finding a great utility in this kind of thing. One of the, sorry to interrupt, but you totally got me. I forgot something actually. I remember back when I was in high school or middle school, there was like a large bent towards like uh, first person history. And so much of our history is actually, you know, like regurgitated over many people through many biases and all that kind of stuff. But one of the first pictures I saw through come through Twitter, like it or not, there's no comment on the actual content, but was a first person account. Someone had a phone of the Osama bin Laden event when he was found and killed. It was like this person was live tweeting with photos of that from at, like a rooftop right next door. And that was a, and it, nobody else had this news. Nobody else knew what was going on, but it was one of those where it was like very clear that like the first person history was now something of a reality. People could now find reach. That person would never have found a way of getting that information out. But all of a sudden, and I think the reason we knew about it is because we found a scalability issue is like that person went from like zero followers to like millions of followers within like a very short moment because he had that content and he, he was sharing it out. Yeah, it's crazy crazy how transformative that stuff was. Right. It really is. So we talked about the pros of social media. Obviously, there's there's yeah. a lot of good, but there are some cons like you alluded yeah. to with content curation uh, and yeah. what do you do when there's freedom of speech, but not freedom of breach? <laughs> right. You know, what, what do you do when you're the BDFL of this platform? Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's really hard. You were there, I believe. Well, when the Twitter algorithm became more opinionated about mm. what is shared on the platform, Let, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Do you have any insights into that? The, the Twitter algo? I don't. It probably is served in some story somewhere in some book somewhere about the history of Twitter. But just to be clear, I didn't have I wasn't on the algo side, so like I didn't have a lot of insight into that stuff. But there was a large debate in the early days about like, how do we do that stuff? P these people, the people, the founders and a lot of the early people were admit like there's a mission for democratizing communication. They like really cared about this stuff. And so they'd have large, very admirable conversations and debates about like, what do we do about all of these things? And in those days, a lot of it was manual. So like I was early enough that the algo was basically a bunch of humans that were trying to figure this stuff out. Obviously that wasn't necessarily scalable, but there was a woman named Del Harvey who was, I remember I met her very early and she was the, the head of trust and safety. And she was like one of those people that you would just wanted to be around because she was extremely bright. She had extreme morals and ethics and she understood the delicacy of the matter. And so I remember during onboarding, you know, it's, you're learning about all those things in the company and coming on and obviously you're doing a lot of hiring. But I remember that was one of my favorite sessions because it was the first time that it became very clear to me that there was an algorithm for this. This this was something that they were trying to grapple with. They very rightfully, at least in my opinion, were trying to figure this out as humans before they applied, like you know, machines to doing it for them. And that the people who were there were very very thoughtful about it. 
Now, what happened afterwards and all the stuff and the biases, I actually didn't have a huge amount of insights into, so I can't comment on that. But it, at least the, I think the story that's lost, at least from the very beginning, whether it's important or not, is that the crew that actually started this actually did care a lot about it and were trying to figure it out. I think in scaling, all, thing, all types of things go in different directions. And I think this is one of those where history will reflect on this uh, better than I can. Yeah, for sure. What are your thoughts? about Elon's takeover? There's a couple of things I think about is, but I'll approach it from the human side. Like obviously I, you know, had a number of people that I cared about who were, who had careers at Twitter, but a lot of those people had left. There were some that were very senior who were still there, who were great. And I think a lot of them got summarily fired as opposed to being laid off because I think there's a lot of truth to power uh, within Twitter's culture kind of that mindset of like, we may not be the executives, we may not be the CEOs, but we have an opinion and we want to be heard. And so I think a lot of them made it known that they didn't, they weren't uh, on board for some of the stuff that, that he was trying to do. I think these are all my opinions, take them for a grain with a grain of salt. But I do think when I left Twitter, it became very obvious to me that it was a public good. It was something that deriving a great deal of revenue from it was always going to be does like a constraint problem and like generating revenue from this thing would always push it to where you had to figure out there's no degrees of freedom by which to operate the thing. And so I think what we see now, at least outside, I don't have any internal knowledge, but you know, things not doing well from a financial perspective. So they're trying to figure out how to like auction off the espresso machines and lay off like some enormous amount of their people. Right. So it's just like one of those real this is a valuable product. It is something that is working to some extent. It does have bias that needs to be figured out, at least I'm sure at some point every platform does. But the constraints of the situation right now, especially on the revenue side, are the, I think the most interesting to me because it, it's one of those where it's how could that be solved for? I don't think it could be a public good right now and a foundation, but it's like one of those where it's like, Maybe that, much like taking a public company private, would give it enough freedom by which it could start to operate a little bit more freely and trying to address the real problems. How do we make this so that there is a better way of, of communicating and dealing with the fact that we need to figure out uh, communication patterns with people who have very different value systems and very different ways of approaching it? I'm not a social media person. I'm a, I have a private account and you know, like I'm not on Instagram or whatever. So I find the grandstanding by current executive team it, Twitter, I won't name names because it's not important, but just about like, you know, the value of the people that came in the past and the technical choices that were made. It's just like one of those where it's armchair stuff and just total theater and a total waste of time. If we cared about actually building a platform that did, you know, that served the public and actually was valuable to the world, a lot of this noise would just be noise and, and taken out of the system. But so much of this now is a media circus around, you know, one or very small number of human beings. I find that part just, I think a waste of time. I, I mentioned at the beginning, I'm not a patient human being, so I admit as much, but I find a waste of time, especially in something as important as figuring out our communication patterns, just kind of repugnant. Like we, we have work to do. There's a lot of work to do. This thing is really, we need to figure some stuff out. So like shooting barbs at each other about X, Y, or Z that have no impact on, on how this thing's going to be operated in the future really is kind of stupid. It's insightful how... There is such a contrast between how Twitter used to be used and how it is currently being used. I can only speculate that it's due to how the algorithms are written right now, where it 
focuses on a central main character as the meme meme goes and not so much about world news anymore if you know what mm. I mean because mm. yeah you remember you were talking about how it was being used to share on the ground like real time pictures of Osama bin Laden as the news broke and at the speed of um, the internet now it's just like we're focused on you know one two couple handful of news items right and actually I mean maybe it's my algorithm but because I'm based in the U.S. and speak English like all of it centers around like a handful of news items I I have no idea what's going on in the rest of the world because it's like I load from you same thing with Snapchat, because I, I was one of the earliest users of Snapchat. And in the early days, before they were incentivized to like put ads in your face and like all that, you know, like the adverse incentives for users, I was able to peer in to the daily lives, mundane lives of just the average person halfway around the world in a completely different culture, speaking different languages. I could see what India looked like. You could see what someone in like Saudi Arabia lived, you know, what kinds of food they ate. And now because of ads, again, all I see are American tabloids. I, I can't, right? It's it's like a sad turn of events how, yeah. you know, the, the vision of Web2 kind of died with the advent of advertising. So, you know, now the main narrative in crypto and what's what's trending for preceding the next bull run is this social tokens or like transfer right. social graphs, right? We're, we're trying to decouple the network yeah. from right. the platform. Yeah. Do we have a hope of course correcting with um, Web3 technology, decentralized technology, and taking us back to the utopic vision of what Web2 was supposed to be? Or do you think that's opium? I think there is a future. I absolutely do. I think there's a number of teams that are ex-Twitter or p- folks that they care about the stuff that are actually popping up all over and actually creating new social platforms. Farcaster and like all these really cool stuff, you know, crypto native and non. And I think one of the interesting parts of any social network is the cold start problem. You know, you get to a platform and you're like, how do I find this discovery? Like, how do I find my community or how do I find something? And there's magical moments, like you said, in the early days where there's like earlier, you know, it's not as many people or the algos are different or whatever it is, where you actually get to see Venn diagrams of con- like, they're not overlapping with the things that are like right in front of you. I think one of the interesting things, especially if we can get to the place where there's self-sovereignty over the graph and like your connections in a way that's actually safe, I think it solves that set cold start problem. And so you could start to take, you know, like the innovation isn't necessarily like, you know, how many people do I know and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of like a table stakes thing and it's something you have in some control over. But it's actually one where now the, the innovation is more on the algo side. So it's like, okay, I want to go, I'm bringing my social graphs and I want to go to this place. And they actually, their optimization is actually not to find what is most similar, but is what is most dissimilar from me, right? Like to your point about like, I want to see a different a view of the world, whether it be something I enjoy or not, it's important for me as a human being to see the things that maybe I don't agree with as much as I do so that I have a more centered and balanced view of the world. And I think that's what early social platforms were is like there was no real way of filtering and it was so small that you could kind of get a complete view. So I think the Web3 or the crypto space of this where you have sovereignty of your graph will still help solve the cold start problem, which I think will enable a number of experiments to go on when it comes to like how information is presented. Now, the question is, 
in so much as like if the data, the content that you're producing is also not self-sovereign, which is a whole nother thing, is not transferable between platforms. It may be a different thing. So the self-start might not be as zero to one. It might be only give you like your followers, but at some point you still have to put content on it. I think there is something to the point of like, once you have your graph, there's a lot of value of bringing that to somewhere else. And you might not find, and this is, I think, maybe going back to the analogy of the town square, humans work in a way where we do not have one town square. That do- It doesn't work on a global scale. It just doesn't. And I think that's what Twitter has become and has hit. Like, it can't be the town square for everybody. And they haven't figured out how to build communities where they can have a little bit more of, you know, these pockets of things that then you can start to think about, okay, I want to go over and look in that community and see what's going on. It's messier than that. So I think one way we could think about this on the product space on the Web3 side is actually you could have a number of different products, but you're bringing your data so that it's multiple town squares and you have the ability to go to one that's more native for like the crypto stuff and discussions on crypto. And then there's one about, you know, arts and there's one about, you know, human rights and there's one about Republicans, Democrats in the United States. And you could start to think about like, I have the ability to jump in those and actually have and understand what's going on and not feel like it's taken away from me, but I have to opt into that. But I think there is some power to this connectivity to humans that's in my wallet or in some part where I have ownership of it. And I can bring that as an asset that then I can get value from, right? From the social communication side of things. So I think there is, I think it's not hopium. I think it's it's the distance off in the future. But I think it's it's really interesting and it's probably something you're going to see a lot of experimentation. And I have to say one last thing. I do think, again, my opinion for all those listening uh, on the Twitter history side of things, but I think Twitter had been rolling along. And I think for better or for worse, Elon came in and has, has taken control and changed a great deal of things. But if, I, if you think about this in the terms of innovation, this is actually a jumpstart. A number of people have very strong reactions, pro and con, to what Elon has done with Twitter, which just forces all of us as builders and product people who are interested in the space to go and experiment with other things. And so I think the self-sovereignty stuff is a little bit of a kickstart in that it, we can use a little bit of this once that stuff's up and running on the foundational side, the platform side, to kind of enable a lot of experiments. And we can really see where this could go. Where I think if Elon hadn't done this or crypto wasn't here, you would basically have this Web2 lock-in where like we kind of just have the same thing. And it's like, you know, the Twitters and those, you know, the Facebooks with the Instagram and as much as Snapchat is still around, you like kind of have these centralized entities that really can't be deconstructed because we can't get our graphs out. We can't reconstruct this in a different way. Right. So from my perspective, and Web3 is the destination, like beyond just the meme and the buzzword. It's the destination that we're trying to get to, the Web 3.0, the interchain, the internet of blockchains, what have you. And from an infrastructure side right now, we have what is called DWeb, like decentralized web. So that actually specifically talks about the components of the stack that make up the tech stack for any given social media platform. If we could split them up and make them like singular but global services in and of themselves, And then if you could compose them together in interesting ways, you might be able to give the user a Web2 experience, but on a completely decentralized sovereign stack. Yeah. Like not any platform owns like the entire stack up and down. Yeah. I I think that's totally true. But if you think about this in core resources of like compute versus like storage or data, let's do data and, and compute. It's not necessarily how we always think about it, but 
I think you're right in the decentralization of like the compute side of this, if you have you composability of the stack. But I do think I'll come back and this is totally a bias. So you can t- tell me I'm wrong. But I think that the most important part of this is actually the the data sovereignty part. If I can bring my data and I can take my data away, it changes the entire game. Everybody who's now trying to leave Twitter who has nowhere to go, has no way of getting their graphs, no way of getting their content, it just like is a non-starter. But if we could really free up innovation by taking that data, then I think there's a whole lot of things. We can go to like completely decentralized compute and like everybody owns a different part of the stack and like we don't have this problem with centralization. But it's also we could imagine non-custodial central exchanges. Okay, there's a centralized compute part of this and like, yeah, we may buy into it, maybe we don't, but we're never stuck because we can basically put our things there and then take them out because we actually have them. They're ours. The data is ours. And I think that's the most important part of this. And the rest of it, centralization or non-centralization of like the actual algos and like the compute side of this, I think we'll hopefully see a spectrum of experiments across those. But I do think if we can get the data side of this right, that's really the Kickstarter for getting this next generation of experiments going on the social side. I absolutely agree with you. However, I do know your profile, which is you are a technologist and yeah. you are perfectly fine managing your own keys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The average person, right? Like, what do you say to them if that's a non-starter for them? Like, oh, you want me to run my own server, my own email yeah. server, like store my own data? How do I even do that? If we are to, you know, move from like a centralized client server model of Web2 into mm-hmm. a deep, like a distributed mesh graph, basically, where we're part of this gossip network altogether. And like my own computer stores all of my tweets or something. And like I archive them. I do all the management that's needed um, for me to run like my little Twitter instance. There's a huge chasm there, right? Like what's yeah. missing? There's a lot missing there. It's actually maybe not a bad analogy to like the exchange world right now that you know, with FTX blowing up and all that stuff, I think there's there's going to be less experiments with international centralized exchanges. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But if you think about the social side of the world, I think the thing that we have to make easy, it goes back to my very mundane mom and apple pie kind of comment about onboarding is the big thing, is if we can make ownership and management of your data as easy as possible... And then plugging that into either a centralized, but non-consodial kind of social network or a decentralized, and you get all the way on the end of the spectrum that people really, you know, for this network, it's really important that they're, we're censorship resistant. And so like we have everything that going. But I think it's one where the user choice, the absolute table stakes has to be that there's like ownership of data. And then the rest of it is kind of like the technologist and product spectrum is like, you can even nerd out and go all the way to the end where you have to run your own server or you can actually kind of stay in the centralized world. But I do think it's non-custodial. So I do think that the part of your question, which is a good one, is like, how do we crack this? Not to my basic summary of that is really figuring out one password is hard enough for most of humanity. But I did get, you know, my parents to actually start using it. And we have contact books and we have like all this stuff in our phone. There's ways of like abstracting out ownership of data to, to where it's kind of actually approachable for most human beings. I think it's, and I'll use another maybe poor analogy or maybe a poor thought experiment, but it feels like if you had your own data, you could have an experience like we had early days where you had to Facebook login. Now, you know, Facebook log is not around much anymore, but it was one where like you could use that identity, which in this case was obviously centralized enough by Facebook, but imagine this thought experiment that you own that. 
you use that to basically get into a number of other things, right? And so it was bad because now all of a sudden all these services, you know, Facebook knew something about you and now everybody else does. But imagine a thought experiment that like you actually owned that and you brought that key or login to something else. And like all of a sudden you were like, yeah, I give you permission to actually sniff this schema in my wallet to get more information about me. If we make that part easy, the rest of it, I think, is all for us nerds to go figure out and have fun with the compute services side of things. But I do think that data side is like, what is one, is, you know, obviously a kind of a naive approach to this, but like, what is the user experience why, where people can actually own and manage that data where it's not just in a front and it's more like managing your photos or managing, you know, your contact list on your phone or something that's very approachable for most people because the expectations and understanding of the value of that data is there. That's the part where I think it's probably not the generation after us. It's probably the generation here. It's like the 12 to 16 where it's like, they like feel comfortable enough, digitally native that, okay, I can manage my data. It's like, I already do that all the time. So now I'm just approaching this in a different way. And I now see this as value because this is actually a key by which I can start to see value immediately from other things. I think for most human beings, time to value is usually, if it's as short as possible, this is an obvious statement, for a product, I mean, this, it's going to be sticky. Hopefully the next set of flows are really important. But like, if you have incentive model for owning your own data is if I take that data to another platform and I see novel value from the stuff that I'm bringing to it, that's going to be a sticky experience. It will motivate people to kind of think about this and like, I should own this because I now can actually get great experiences by bringing my data set to different places. We've got to make it really easy how to like figure out how to get this data into a vault and then how to actually make it such that it can be managed very easily. So that's a totally new mindset and that's not an easy one. To your point, technologist is like, yeah, of course, this is great. But for most humans, there's, there's going to be some product genius that like figures out a very intuitive process. Like I got lucky and got to meet uh, Kevin Systrom on the Instagram side very early. And it was one where I remember he's a product genius for sure. And he was like thinking about Instagram and photos had been around forever, but it was like that kind of old school square photo that was really like, oh, this is new. Like I'm taking this and like they care about the quality of the photo and the presentation of it in a totally different way. And it was valuable. It was like really, really sticky because people saw that. It doesn't talk to the data side of things, but it does talk to like that stickiness of something that can seem almost like simple is what's going to pop this, I think. Because the technology is coming along. And so the technologists are going to make this easier and more composable. And the real product and the design people are going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. I think those are the people who are going to be like, okay, actually, there's an analogy to the physical world that would be perfect. Let's like make this magical product experience, which seems almost obvious in retrospect, that allow people to really keep the data that they care about and bring it to these different places that they see different value. So just to give you an idea about how early we are in the space, we are still trying to solve scalability. We're at that phase right now. You know, as, as a product person, how many years would you estimate are remaining before we are able to breach mainstream usability feasibly? And not a totally answerable question, especially since I'm new to the space. But I do think there's like, at least from my experience on the Elsmosa side, the people that I'm working with are the right people to be thinking about this, not only in osmosis, but it, when I went to the Cosmoverse, it was like very clear that the type of people that I met there were the type of people that I find in most of my career who had, you know, spent five years scaling something from zero to like world scale. So I, I'm not really sure how to answer your question from the standpoint of like actual N number of years. But I will say that the people that I find here have the talent to do it, have the motivation 
they're also largely missionaries. If you think about the world and the view of like missionaries versus mercenaries, people that do things only for money and people who care about the passion and the mission, they're missionaries. And those are the people that are going to solve this the fastest because they actually have, they like want to get to the value as quickly as possible. It's just kind of buffing the stone as a mercenary would do. But I think my, you know, random answer based on my past experience of scaling, of working with teams that scale out platforms to, you know, from zero to very, very large probably in the five-year range, depending upon which scalability problem and what, how large the addressable market is. But that's a vague answer and it's very different to different sectors of the market. And now that I'm reflecting on it, I might be wrong and maybe let's cut it in half. Because I think there are infrastructure pieces that didn't exist for a lot of those teams that now exist that actually can cut that stuff in half. So I think there's a lot of experiments to be done. And I view scalability as actually something that's important in performance alongside it, especially for those sticky user experiences because humans are impatient and we want to make sure they're like as fast as possible. But it does feel like we have a lot of the tools where we didn't even five years ago to be able to address that on the global scale. N number of years where N is very small is probably in the two to three range for most if you have really good crews to go after it. I'll come back to my bias again. I think the longer tent pole here is actually the valid use case that incentivizes people to come back and continually reuse a product in the crypto space. That's the part that feels further away for me. It's not the technology side. The technology feels like we've got the right people and we need to rework certain pieces and and all sorts of stuff. But I think we all have the right model from the standpoint it's composable systems. So the reason I think I love the Cosmos is because like it's a very developer first kind of like we want to compose these things and give freedom to developers to create whatever experience they were and we're not locking them into like you know very you know a short contract kind of only model. So I think there's a lot of developer freedom in this. And so I think that will give us a lot of time and space by which to operate. That performance and scalability will come as we need it. And I don't think that's going to be the barrier. So maybe the right answer, at least in my mind, to your question is is more about the technology is not going to get in our way. I think at this point, it's going to be figuring out that user experience and figuring out how to apply this. Because there's a lot of smart people who, if we haven't solved the problem, which obviously we haven't in all cases, they'll be able to solve that. So it's more of a question of how do we take all these proposal pieces like Legos and build, you know, like this monumental thing. And I think that's the, what I'm hoping us being in a bear market very clearly, it will give us the time and space to build. And I love bear markets because it's like that time where you can have a little bit of time and space to try experiments without having a lot of froth. So there's constraints in the market by which you can actually determine value. Like, do we care about this or not? And a bull market is hard because you're like, you throw something out there and it grows for whatever reason, based entirely on speculation as opposed to value. So right now is a perfect time for us, I think, on, on this space. And I'm just jumping in, so I'm still new, but it's like the perfect time to like kind of really feel out like where is the value and the performance and the scalability, I think, will come because of the nerds that are here. And as I, I looked at an electric capital report that just came out about developer growth, and even though we're still in a bull market and definitely there's been a downturn, there's a huge amount of developers coming into space. Right. It's nice that the Web2 space in some cases is exploding, you know, cratering or whatever. And people are like, I want to go build something really new and fun and want to go have huge value, which is probably similar to me, you know, are coming into the space who are like, hey, this looks really interesting. I want to try and understand how we can build something totally different. Someone who's plugged into the Silicon Valley space. Yeah. Would you say that the Web2 builders are coming into crypto and building their own projects? Or are they joining teams? Bimodal distribution, maybe it's not only two peaks, but let's let's take it from the engineering. I'll do product and engineering because those are two kind of differently focused 
groups, but let's do the engineering one. It's a bimodal distribution. I'm old enough that there is a large camp that is very skeptical of any of the crypto systems. So it's the usual tropes about all the product problems like FTX exploding and Ponzi scheme this and blah, blah, blah. And so they'll never work on this stuff. So there, but that's still a very prevalent thing in the Valley, especially for a lot of the people that have a huge amount of experience in building very large systems. I find that a lot. But there's another mode where people are actually interested in coming in. They're usually more risk tolerant. The Bay Area has become very risk intolerant, under my opinion, because we have this safety net of the venture capitalist system where basically there's a huge amount of money sloshing around and you can really be a mercenary and actually make a ton of money by kind of doing chapters at different companies and kind of playing that game. And I don't hold anything against those people. Like Everybody had makes different choices and it's not a, not a bad way necessarily. But the missionary of the barrier, I feel like it still has pockets. There's still people there, especially all over. But it does feel like the engineers are more likely at this point to answer your question concisely to join projects. Like they find someone that they trust and they like, and they're like, oh, that person's building. That's really cool. So like, I want to go do it with them. So it's a little bit more of that engine of things. And that's for people who have my lens on this is actually people who've been in the tech industry for, you know, more than five years. So that's kind of the bottom of distribution on there. The product side is more interesting. Like if I talk to venture capitalists and I, who are non-crypto, where I talk to product people, there's more of a balance because they naturally have a better appetite for risk, right? They're like, okay, if I make you know a bet and it's a riskier, I actually maybe have a bigger outcome or whatever. And so for the product people, it's one of those where, you, again, it's a bi-modal distribution, but it kind of is on the axis of, of risk from a product perspective because people are thinking about, well, what's the actual use case? And for the product people who are always kind of leaning in the direction of like, ah, oh, this is going to be so fun because there isn't one now and that I really want to figure it out. There's a lot of those in the Valley. That's where the entrepreneurial spirit comes from because they're trying to approach a problem with a new solution. There's also a lot of people who kind of came to the Valley, even if they're in the product space and kind of want to work on something that's a little bit less risky from the standpoint of market fit. And so they kind of fit in that space. But I would say like, if I were to make a, you know, a random speculation, you know, like, I don't know, 50-50 on the engineering side between those two biomodal distribution and between those distributions of like people who are just like total skeptics and will never touch this stuff because it's all horrible to the people that are kind of curious and joining projects. On the product side, it's more like 70-30 where people are kind of leaning in and being like, oh, there's something here. There's clearly value, but it isn't articulated yet. And so it's my job to kind of come in and be like a product strategy and think about this in a different way. And there's more of those people who I, I see in the Valley. And I, funny enough, it's actually one where I find people, product managers, and, and I know a number of them who've moved away from the Valley in the COVID times where like people have freedom to kind of move wherever they want and kind of experience different communities. The ones who have moved away is a good litmus test for the ones that are more interested in crypto. They have more of an interest in the things that are going out, on outside of the Valley. That's a total general statement, but it's at least in my small end statistics, it's like, born out to be kind of true. They moved away, they went to Europe, they went to different parts of the United States that are not as in, you know integrated into the bubble of Silicon Valley. And then- No, yeah, add, and- me, add me as a data point. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, so that's, that's a long answer to your question, but yeah, that's kind of the way that I see the world. But I do think if I were to zoom out, I do think that the, the Web2, you know, a lot of people are being laid off and uh, a lot of these companies are downsizing because they've overhired which is a whole other conversation. But I think a lot of these people are going to be kind of coming back to what do I care about? What motivates me to get out of uh, bed in the morning? 
And I think we're going to find a lot of people who are like, hey, I want to build something totally new. And this is you know, kind of the classic Web2 SaaS space is not where I want to do it. And that's where a lot of the money has been made in the last set of bull runs on the Web2 side. Like maybe I should go and approach this, or maybe I have a visceral sense for like data ownership or privacy or any of the things that we talk about that are more philosophical. And I think that'll, that'll be something that'll bring more folks. But I do think we'll find that a lot of the communities of builders outside of Silicon Valley will start to gain more prominence in the Web3 space because there's a maybe a more of an affinity toward kind of approaching things from a different space. So I'm excited to see places like Berlin or Lisbon or, you know, um, Austin, which has kind of always been in the Web2 space as well. New York is great. It's in there, but I see a lot of really cool stuff coming out of there. But it's really great to see these communities that are kind of coming up and building. They're not so centric to the kind of geographic location of San Francisco, which I think can get pretty myopic, but my opinion. The Web2 space still, by and large, compared to Web3, has the majority of people talent. Mm-hmm. What is, I mean, you know, just just so you could shed some shed some light for people who are just like, you know, neck deep in crypto. Like, what's yeah. what's our competition? I wh- what is so sticky about Web two that people aren't just jumping into Web three head first? I mean, it, there's only a few people with like higher risk appetites who are yeah yeah. So what's what's caught? What's stopping them from coming in? I think there's two things. Or I mean, um, what's, what's keeping them in Web2, rather? Uh, um, historically, and I think this is changing, but I think the arms race of compensation was one of the biggest ones. Um, I think uh, having hired, you know, uh, all across the board when it came to seniority and, and uh, level of skill on the engineering side, over the last 13 years, actually maybe more in the Bay Area, it was... It was Shocking, uh, because there was always some company, usually with an S, an A, an N, or a G, and the time you see it on the front of the name, who was like willing to just say like, "Nope, we're just going to spend more money to the point where it's not value based. It's just we're going to win this compensation negotiation." And it became it's just kind of natural for humans. Uh, and again, I don't begrudge anybody. But it just became one where it was like, okay, I can, why, it, it became what I used to call an IQ test because I actually had this situation at Twitter where I was negotiating compensation for someone who I really liked, who I thought would be a great fit for the team, who was just stunningly good as an engineer. And he was relatively early in his career, maybe four or five years out, and he was leaving Google. And I remember I was like, hey, we should do the deal. He's like, oh, I'm so interested. This is exactly what I want. Like, I want to start a team, blah, 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 blah. But a vice president of the company he was with, I mentioned, uh, came in, closed the door at his office, and slipped him an envelope. And it for it was like something like two million dollars in two years or something. And for a person who was like, you know, back in 2012 or whatever it was, it was what I called an IQ test. It was like, am I going to stay here for two years and make an obscene amount of money and you know do a good job and have fun doing what I'm doing, or am I going to do this thing that's more risky? And for a lot of people, I think even if they're secure or whatever, but they have families, those IQ tests were happening over and over and over. And so I think one of the things that's keeping people is a you know a bland answer, and maybe not everybody's favorite, but it is competition. There's no risk historically. There was very little risk in tech when it came to employment, and there was always more money to be made. And if you found a team that you, to my earlier point about finding people that you want to build with, if you found a team that motivates you to get up. It isn't necessarily a position where you want to incentivize to like change everything and go and try something which is higher appetite for risk. So I think there is, I think there is that 
part of it. I also think that for a lot of technologists, this early stage of the crypto where a lot of the pieces are missing or maybe they're not exactly right and so they need to be formed, it's harder to see like, okay, are we really building something or not? Like, what, what are we building? Like, how is this going to work? What is the value of it? And a lot of people get kind of stuck on that. I think if I were to, to wave a magic wand and be able to solve some of these things, two neat, same things need to happen. We need to have a massive downturn where, you know, the classic tech industry usually would too, was not in that they couldn't do the arms race of compensation anymore. We're there now, right? Like people are being laid off from the companies that usually were just sliding envelopes that weren't connected to value, right? So that's gone. And the other one I think is really trying to, you know, that first magical moment where crypto is powering like a profoundly new and very interesting and total addressable market being the world product experience. And I think that much like Google did in the very early days, like search was maybe sexy to some, but like Stanford graduates, you know, or like the founders or whatever. But when you could enter into a single search bar, you know, answer this question for me and it would come back with all the documents that actually are relevant to that. That was like one of those that I think a number of engineers who were less risky were classically working more in like, you know, airplane, like all classic engineering disciplines. They're like, oh, this is actually could change the world. I want to go try and do that. And so I think it was really that product experience that kind of unhooked it for them. And so it felt r- less risky because it felt very personal to them, the value that they would get to this. So I think there's probably two things. It's loosens up on the compensation side and over the next four or five years, you know, and a number of years, small end, like we're going to hopefully find some use cases that excite people to come over. Right. So the bell curve meme again rings true where, okay, the people at the right of the bell curve, the top 1%, they could see the value of it um, and people on the very other end, similar thing. But the mass majority at the center of the bell curve are still saying uh, safety first, nine to five makes sense. If I'm getting like a steady income stream, this is where I'm going to stay. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I don't begrudge them in the least. I, in some corners, people are being in that fat part of the middle is actually maybe not great. But in this case, I think, yeah, that's probably spot on. But I do think risk is coming to the doorstep, right? The macro situation is something where right. that, we don't have the luxury of existing in the world for many number of reasons. And so I think we'll start to see a lot more people who are coming into the space who are actually interested in building but I do think the product part of this is actually super important to try and figure out how we can incentivize that. Because as a person who's hired, again, a number of people, if you can get someone excited about what you're building and why it's valuable to the, the community that you're building it for, that's the best way of hiring the people that you want to hire. And I think sometimes it's a little bit hard to do that across the board in the crypto space because a lot of it's still kind of platform, like, hey, we're building for developers or we're building for this specific part of the market. And I think um, those excite people, but it isn't going to be like a mass migration of folks until we find one of those use cases, which like kind of pulls at a human part of us, which we all hold communication across, you know, just distributed groups of people like Twitter or whatever. Those are things that we could all get behind and be like, yeah, we want to try and solve that problem. Let's go figure this out. And so I think we're going to have to find some of those. Thanks for tuning in to Interchain FM. As always, I will read through the pages of white papers and condense only the alpha for you in a one hour long digest. Be sure to subscribe to Chango and Chain's YouTube channel to be up to date about the latest technology and never miss a live streamed episode.